0: Oh, we're back. Yes. When did you first lay eyes on Master Orson Welles?
1: Well, many, many years ago, I used to spend my holidays with my aunt, who was quite an affluent gal, and lived at the Waldorf Astoria, the old Waldorf. One time there was a little boy who came in with a gentleman who wore a Stetson hat and had little white trousers on and blazer and so forth and he was explaining about a concert to two old dowagers and I, I was just fascinated with this little boy and I said to my aunt, listen to his vocabulary. Did you ever hear such vocabulary in your life? I was uh, awestruck with this youngster. Well, anyway, during the time that I was there, we went into the drugstore, and I was having a chocolate soda and he sat beside me. I said, I hear you went to the concert the other day and he said, yes, I wanted to hear more about this. And we talked and talked. Well, all right. Years pass. I get here to New York and every once in a while in meeting Orson and we worked together, of course, in radio, I would think, it seems to me that I've seen you before. Somewhere I've seen you and then it would pass. Well, we were out on the set at a Citizen Game, and they had just done a story about it in the Saturday Evening Post. And he said, have you seen this? And he tossed the magazine over to me, and I opened it, and there was a picture of the little boy. And I said to him, Orson, did you ever spend your holidays in New York City? And he said, yes. I said, where did you stay? At the Waldorf Astoria. And I, said, I told him the story, and he said... Well, to think, Aggie, that I knew you when I was seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> so every time you ask Orson, you know how yeah. long he's known me. He says, Well, I've known him since I was seven years old.
2: Stand by. We'll be on the air in fifteen seconds, Mister Wells. Yes, I know. Stand by,
3: everybody. Starlight, star bright, first star, star I see you tonight. I wish I may I wish I might. I wish I get my wish tonight.
2: Are you, Mr. Wells? Who's that? Me, Jiminy Cricket. Uh, what's that, Mr. Wells?
3: I don't know. I guess I was just talking to myself.
2: Hello, Mr. Wells. Hey,
3: who are you anyway? Where are you?
2: Well, I'm right here by your side from now on. I'm your conscience. Look here, aren't you Jiminy Cricket from Walt
3: Disney? That's right.
2: What are you doing away from Pinocchio? Well, he doesn't need me anymore, but you do, Mr. Wells. Somebody's got to keep you out of trouble. We can't have you scaring the whole country again for one thing and for another. All right, Mr. Wells.
3: Good evening. This is Orson Welles, and this is the first of a new radio series brought to you with the compliments of our sponsor, Lady Esther.
4: Tonight it's our now, plan. Now don't
3: do too much talking. We of the Mercury Theater. Get on with On
4: Monday, September fifteenth, nineteen forty-one. Grateful to be finished with Citizen Kane, a 26-year-old Orson Welles returned to radio with the Mercury Theater on a variety program for Lady Esther Cosmetics. Cliff Edwards was Jiminy Cricket. The Mercury troupe of actors like Agnes Moorhead, Ray Collins, and Joseph Cotton were joined by Hollywood newcomers like Elliot Lewis, Hans Conrad, and Byron Kane. The Lady Esther show would experiment. They performed short dramatic pieces, poetry, and comedy. That I shall see that Wells also scaled back enough guest enough appearances. He needed some rest. Hated his guardian. But The Magnificent Conraden. Ambersons, his Conraden. second film, Conraden? went into production on October 28th. In late November, Conraden. Wells was named the Goodwill Ambassador to Latin America by Nelson Rockefeller. so
3: year after year.
4: Rockefeller was then the U.S. coordinator of inter American affairs and a principal stockholder in RKO. Meanwhile, there was an oasis in the desert of his loneliness and boredom.
3: This was a disused tool shed in a forgotten corner of the Lower Garden. There, Conradin found a haven. He peopled it with ghosts, with phantoms from his books
4: and from his dreams. And the tool shed boasted two individuals. Then, of on December 7th. <laughs>
3: We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu.
4: Breaking Walls, episode 104. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we focus on Orson Welles's radio career from Pearl Harbor through the end of Radio's Peak, and pick up where we left off in Breaking Walls, episode 79. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Don Swan's Hooray for Hollywood, a fitting mambo-fevered tune for a man that spent much of the 1940s in the City of Angels. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com group The And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for new teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash wallbreakers.
3: Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. The Gulf Screen Guild Theater. The Gulf Oil Companies and your good Gulf dealer are proud to present a dramatic picture of this, Our America. Here is your host, Roger Pryor, to tell you about it. Good evening, everyone. We welcome you tonight to one of the most timely programs ever heard on the Gulf Screen Guild Theater, our production of Norman Corwin's script, Between Americans, starring Orson Welles, Broadcast at any time, we believe this program would make every American's heart beat a little faster, make him hold his head just a little higher. But since the tragic and foreboding news that came today, this program Between Americans now becomes an American odyssey. In just a moment, our story will begin, but first... Here's Bud Easton, Right. And here's an easy way to change from a pessimist into an optimist.
4: On the evening of December 7, 1941, with the United States reeling from the attacks on Pearl Harbor and Manila, Orson Welles took to the air on CBS in collaboration with Norman Corwin. Corwin was hired by CBS in April of 1938. For the next three years, he honed his craft on shows like Words Without Music, Forecast, and The Pursuit of Happiness.
3: Through a series of serendipities, somebody at CB has heard me and thought that I would be an interesting addition to their staff. They engaged me as a director, not knowing that my chief interest was writing. And so I parlayed those talents and became my own producer as well. And in very short time, I was able to latch on to some opportunities that found my programs getting attention in the national publications, Time, and other magazines, and there I was on my way. When I went to CBS as a director, I began, for the first few months, I directed the work of other people. Mm-hmm.
5: I
4: did some adaptations, of a very minor characters. more or less learned the network console, In 1941, Corwin was given the task of taking over the famed Columbia workshop. He wrote and directed 26 plays, today considered some of his best work. The final one was between Americans.
6: On an evening
4: unlike any prior in American radio history, Corwin tabbed Orson Welles to talk directly to the country. It was the first time they'd worked together.
3: This program is Between Americans. That's where the title comes in. We hope you like it, but you don't have to. At any rate, nobody's going to make you stick around and listen to it. That's one of the advantages of being an American. Now, tonight we're doing something quite foreign to the type of thing usually presented by the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Instead of telling a story about five or six people, we're telling a story about a hundred million. This happens to include you, Listener. Whatever your name may be. As a matter of fact, names don't bother real Americans very much. Not when we've got states named after French kings and English queens that are listed right out of the Latin language like Montana or out of the Spanish like Nevada and towns. You know, if you were to hold a convention of all the people who live in foreign-sounding American towns, we could fill quite a sizable stadium. Among the delegates registering on the first day would be...
2: Me on the delegate from London. Minnesota. I'm in from Dublin, New Hampshire. Flew in this morning from Cairo, Illinois. Huh? Uh, who turned
3: me? Uh, I'm from Canton, Connecticut.
2: I'm from Paris, Texas.
3: I came all the way from Shanghai, West Virginia. Wausau, Georgia.
2: I'm the delegate representing
3: Moscow, Kentucky. My town is Toronto, Kansas. As for me, Lisbon, Maine. Delegate from Madrid, Alabama reporting. I'm
2: from Stockholm, South Dakota.
3: Drove down this afternoon from Bombay, New York. Hitchhiked here from Baghdad, Florida. All right, delegates. Now that you've registered, you may all be seated. Now, that's all the preliminaries there's going to be tonight. We're through with the introductions, the overture, and the official registration. And so now we can get down to the text, which is, roughly speaking, this. Today, particularly, people are thinking about their country pretty hard. Some of them for the first time in their lives. People are wondering where we're headed. Men are being called on to get ready to defend America. A lot of them are thinking in terms of what is there to defend. Well, now, America means a lot of things to a lot of people. Most of them are solid patriots, only they don't know it. They don't have to wear a red and white and blue button in their lapels to prove it. They don't have to agree with or even listen to people like this. I'm... hunch most people prefer the quiet kind of speaker. Like the fellow who got up on a platform in a Pennsylvania town one day and
2: said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here.
3: That was the Gettysburg Address he was referring to. As a matter of fact, he didn't get such good reviews the next morning. Take, for example, the write-up he got in the Harrisburg Patriot. <laughs> We pass over the silly remarks of the President. For the credit of the nation, we are willing that they shall no more be repeated and thought of. You think that's bad? Listen to what the Chicago Times had to say. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. Of course, the rival paper in Chicago took the opposite point of view. Rival papers often do. The remarks of President Lincoln will live among the annals of man. That paper gave it four stars, and they were right. The Gettysburg Address did survive. But that business of calling a president a ham is really something to be proud of. I mean, the right to print a piece saying a president makes a sound like dishwater. Nobody dragged the editors off to jail, even if they were wrong. That's important. Comes under the heading of free press. As soon as anybody starts gagging the press, any press, watch out. Americans don't like that. By the way, we got on earth to be calling ourselves Americans all the time when we're really only United Staters. We're a little selfish about that. It's America down there in Chile, too. All the way down the spine of the Andes. If any of you folks are hearing this down around Mexico or... Honduras, or Salvador, or Argentina, or even if you're an Eskimo in the Arctic. We hope you will overlook our calling ourselves Americans as though we were the only ones in the hemisphere. We do that just because it's so much easier to say than anything else. Also because it sounds so good. By the way, before we leave the subject, what about the original Americans? The Indians? There's a forgotten race for you. How about the Indian on the nickel and the buffalo who roamed the back of the great American jit? Seems a shame. No two ways about it. We have forgotten those one hundred percent Americans who went down to quarantine to meet the Mayflower. We don't see them around in person very much these days, but their ghosts are still with us. Maybe the red men are forgotten. Maybe not. But between you and us, it's said that near Boonesboro, Kentucky, on certain nights in November, by the light of the waning moon, some very peculiar ghost meetings go on in the woods south of the river. Also in certain parts of the Alleghenies, between the hours of sundown and the coming of the morning mist. Yes, if you happen to be listening to this in a car driving along Highway 99 in Wyoming. That man you passed walking down the road a few miles back wasn't a man at all. Seriously, they were brave people. The Indians...
4: Eight days later, on the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Bill of Rights, Corwin wrote and directed a play called We Hold These Truths. It was simultaneously broadcast on all four major radio networks and boosted by the Armed Forces Radio Service. Sixty million tuned in, and Wells was again prominently featured.
7: Do you think 55 representatives of the American people sat in a hall in New York City, in a drafty hall? and made up articles of freedom? Do you think the congressmen from 13 states made up those freedoms out of their own heads, debated there, deliberated there, without assistance, all by themselves, from their own experience? Oh, no. They had much help. From many nameless and unknown, from dust in quiet places, From broken bones, deep in the earth, deep in forgotten earth, mixed with the empty clay. From bleeding mouths, burnt flesh, cropped ears, from numberless and nameless agonies. The delegates from dungeons, they were there.
3: I said that men were born equal. That is all I said.
7: The delegates from ashes, at the bottoms of the stakes, They were there. The king did not approve. The gallows delegates, whose corpses lifted gently in the breeze. They too. We too. We too. The exiled wanderers. The Christians killed for being Christians. Jews for being Jews. The Quakers hanged in Boston town. They made a quorum also.
2: present. We are
7: present. The murdered men. The lopped off hands. The shattered limbs. The red welts where the whiplash bit into the back. Must you know what they said? Must you know how they argued? Must you be told the evidence? the silent testimony of the raids must it be told verbatim? Listen then! (coughs) That was an argument for an amendment. (coughs) That was a speech in favor of an article of freedom. (coughs) That prayed the passage of a bill of rights. How much of all this must be told to be believed? Must it be drawn on diagrams? X marks the spot where decency was last observed. The dotted line shows how the victim staggered. The arrow points to blood. The headsman, he was there in Federal Hall the man who turned the ratchets on the rack. He sat in the assembly, too. Nero was there, Caligula, King Philip, Torquemada, Cotton Mather, all the tyrants and the martyrs who had gone before, sat quietly, unseen among the representatives, read from their memoirs. Expert testimonies found their ways into the records and between the lines. All the long and bloody history of fanaticism, murder in the name of God, torture in the name of love, crucifixion in the name of safety to the crown.
2: My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me?
7: He too sat in the Congress. The mild man with the scars in his hands and feet where the spikes went through. He was a consultant in the business at hand. Had he not died because the rulers of a realm denied free speech? Was he not nailed up on a cross between two thieves because his preachments were considered treason. He, the son of God, was he not executed over an issue of the rights of man? Make no mistake about it. He was there. ...sat beside James Madison and Elbridge Gerry and John Page in Federal Hall. Unseen he was, but voting. The men of Congress were collaborated with. They added up the gains and losses and the brave words spoken... And the brave song sung, they weighed the drawn and quartered flesh. They took into account the hemlock and the crucifix, the faggot and garrote. And then they framed amendments to the Constitution. Out of the agonies out of the crisscross scars of all the human race they made a bill of rights for their own people
4: although orson wells was still in his mid 20s by the end of 1941 he'd influenced a generation of peers like radio actor byron kane <laughs>
0: We heard that Orson was coming back to do Lady Esther. And his producer, although it was Orson who called all the shots, there was a man called Claire Amsted, who was the producer. And we found out, all of us seasoned radio actors, that if we had to get on the Orson Welsh show or to get anything, we had to audition for Claire Amstead. I see Claire Amstead. I knew what he looked like, a big, burly man, gray-haired, formidable-looking man was walking in the CBS three days before the show was to go on the air. We understood that we were gonna have auditions, and I walked up to him and said, Mr. Armstead, my name is Byron Kane. I'm a radio actor here in Hollywood, and if possible, I'd like the opportunity for auditioning for you, Mr. Wells. Now this was Friday, I remember it clearly. It was on a Friday. He said, why don't you write me a letter, tell me, you know, give me a background. This was early in Friday, about 11 o'clock in the morning. He sent it to the NW Air Agency. I said, okay, thank you very much, and away he went. About five minutes later, up the steps, and out from Sunset Boulevard comes Hans. And I said, uh, hey, I just saw Claire Armstead. He says, write him a letter. That's how you audition for him. He says, write him a letter. Now, this, Hans was way better known than I was in those days, too, because he had started real early, and from the start, he was so prominent, and so colorful. Now, the show was going on on Tuesday. I went home, and I immediately wrote the letter. About one o'clock, Friday afternoon, and I dropped it in the mail. Now, don't ask me how this happened, why it happened. Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock, I got a phone call from Claire Armstead's office. He said, Mr. Armstead got your letter, and he would like you to come to an audition for Mr. Wells' program, if you can, in Studio 2 at CBS at 4 o'clock. I says, yes, yes, I can. And they, they also check times, are you available if... Chance you are chosen? Are you available to be on the show Tuesday? I says yes, I am. I, says, I got a chance to be on. I said, well, so I come into the studio. Too, it's a little studio where we had an organ. Walk into the studio, open the inner door, get in, and there's standing Hans. He had written a letter. <laughs> we read our piece, a little piece here, piece there. and all Wells was not there. Almstead was there and the engineer and the secretary. It was Almstead who said, uh, okay, fellas, fine. Rehearsal is tomorrow. We're gonna be, we're gonna work with Orson Welles. Well, the next day we showed up and it was the Almanac, it was called the Lady Esther Almanac and you had episodic things, maybe seven minutes of a show about this and then a the commercial and seven minutes and the show about this and seven minutes show about this. We came around right around the first read around the table and it was only Hans and myself And Orson said, gentlemen, you two are the most fantastic actors I've ever met. Now, whether it was his bravura or his expanse at the moment to say that, we didn't care, nor did we even think, we accepted it. (laughs) And of course, we were thrilled to death. We were in such awe of Wells, even in those days, he was no more than 25. We were on every show that he ever did
4: in Hollywood from then on. With the United States gearing up for the war, Orson Welles spent Christmas of 1941 in Los Angeles. On December 20th, he received a telegram from the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs. To promote greater Pan-Americanism, he was being sent by RKO to Rio de Janeiro. Welles was to make a film showcasing Carnival.
3: This is Orson Welles bringing you another radio show for Lady Esther. Tonight we present Miss Rita Hayworth. In There Are Frenchmen and Frenchmen, a not-very-high comedy dealing with two rather closely-related institutions, love and wrestling. Lovers will find nothing in the story... To...
4: Nine days later, on December 29th,
3: Come with me. Rita Hayworth was guest
4: star in the Lady it Esther program. It was the first time they met.
3: Woman, but this one was beautiful, Musu! She was a goddess straight from a bronze coin of ancient Greece.
2: Musu! You address me! Sure. Get in the sedan. I'm going to drive you.
3: Thank you. Mademoiselle is very young to be a dean.
2: Oh, I'm just pinch-hitting while the regular dean is away. My real job is instructor in physical education. First you must see our new golf
4: course. Although Wells had been divorced once before, and was in a relationship with Mexican actress Dolores Del Rio, he later said it was love at first sight. I
3: not a mallet. Ride? Uh, no. Row? No, neither. Wimps? No. Run? Rock? No. Fence? Wrestle? None of them.
6: Stop shaking your head! What do you do? I read. Haven't you any interest in
3: sport? I have never witnessed any sort of athletic game. I hope never to do so. <clears throat> she looked at me as if I were a worm she had found in her salad. All the time her... Uh...
0: Say, I saw your friend recently, Orson Welles.
1: Oh, yes.
0: You were were in Magnificent Ambersons and Citizen Kane. We talked about that once on the show. Well, I worked with with Orson
1: 17 years.
0: In the Mercury Theater. Yes. When he made the films, was he a perfectionist? Did he do things over and over? Was he meticulous? Or did he just have a kind of freewheeling way of getting it right the first time? No. The Ambersons,
3: literature's most fascinating
1: family, brought to the screen. There was a a scene in Magnificent Ambersons that was by the boiler scene it was a very hysterical scene and i think i went through about three or four rooms with it and of course we never cut we never stopped the camera because the camera was on little tracks and it would stop for a close-up or it would stop for a type two or it's you know and it followed the actor it was the audience and it was very very difficult we didn't know too much about the technique of a movie making And I remember this particular part that I was doing. He said to me, now, I want you to play it like a little girl. And, of course, that wasn't the characterization that I had made up my mind to do at all. The second time he said, I want you to play it like an insane woman. And then the next time he said, I want you to play it like she's absolutely inebriated. And I played it that way. And again, he said, now I want you to play without absolutely, just an absolutely vacuous mind. And by the time I thought to myself, what in the world does he want? After about the fifth time, I began to realize what he wanted. And I did it 11 times, different characterizations. And then the 12th time, after he was absolutely satisfied with the technical part of it, he said to me, now play it. And it had a little bit of the hysteria. It had a little bit of the insanity. It had a little bit of the little girl. And he had mixed it all up in my mind so that the characterization that I played had a little bit of all of these. And it was terribly exciting.
2: Finally,
3: Isabel's boy, Young George, played by Tim Holt. Ed's strong, impetuous, and arrogant air. To the splendor of him.
8: I wrote the script partly on King Vita's yacht off catalina the rest of it in mexico then we rehearsed it longer than i've ever rehearsed anything because it was a relatively small cast everybody we worked very hard for i think we were five weeks rehearsing not on set or anything no movements just rehearsing. and then we recorded every scene so that we remembered what we thought about it so that when you Came on the set. There was the way it all, we had decided it ought to sound, even if we were going to change it. Oh, that's great! And I've done that since a lot. It's but it save a lot of time. It right. does, uh, but also it gives you new ideas. You see what's wrong, and I think it's kind of for pre- you to come fresh after a week or two and hear a new. Director and producer of a truly distinguished and exciting. Camera work moved very slowly. Let's put it that way. In fact, the picture took longer to shoot than any picture I've ever done. Instead of shorter, as it was planned. As
4: 1942 began, Wells was in production with the Magnificent Ambersons, shot at RKO's Gower Street Studios in Los Angeles the interior set walls could be adjusted to allow for continuous takes. Location shooting took place at Big Bear Lake and the San Bernardino National Forest. East LA snow scenes were shot at the ice house of the Union Ice Company downtown. The film went over budget by 20%. Wells directed but did not star.
5: Were you deliberately looking for something in which you wouldn't appear? Yes.
1: Why was
4: that? I made a mistake.
5: I shouldn't have done it i was obsessed in my hot youth with the idea that i would not be a star i would only incidentally play great roles now there's no such thing as incidentally playing great roles and i was in a position to promote myself as a star and i should have i should have gone back to new york and played hamlet and as long as it was going i didn't i had this idea that i wanted to be known as a director and that was it I loved Ambersons. point of Ambersons, everything that is any good in it, is that part of it which was really just a preparation for the decay of the Ambersons. It was thought by everybody in Hollywood while I was in South America that it was too downbeat, famous Hollywood word at the time, downbeat. So it was all taken out, but it was the purpose of the movie was to see how they all
3: slid downhill, you see, in one way or another.
4: After production wrapped, Wells flew to Brazil. But in the States, the Magnificent Amberson screened poorly. And Wells had negotiated away his right to the final cut. Film editor Robert Wise remembered that time. He was not up here when we previewed the film,
2: after we got it all finished. We had sent him a print and he had some changes he wanted made, which we made, but then we took the picture out for preview. The audience just wouldn't sit still for it. They laughed at it, laughed at some of the performances, they walked out in droves, and it was as disastrous a preview as you could possibly imagine. And the studio was very, naturally, very upset. They had a lot of money in this film and they wanted to get it out, so... Jack Moss, who was his man here, is the social producer on the film, and I were kind of caught in the middle between Orson and his inability to come up here and do anything about it, but still wanting a voice in it, and the studio, on the other hand, who was wanting to get something done with this film that would allow him to release
4: it. In 1942, RKO underwent major changes. Nelson Rockefeller left its board of directors, and studio president George Schaefer resigned. The New Brass took control of Amberson's. Any Wells' attempt to protect his version ultimately failed.
8: The basic intention of the picture was to make this golden world and then show what it turns into. And what is left of the picture is only the golden world and a kind of arbitrary uh, ringing down of the curtain by a series of, of clumsy, quick devices. Because the bad black world that came was just too much for people at that time, and I wasn't there to be able to fight for it. I remember that even Joe Cotton wrote me in South America and says, You have no idea, now that we've seen the whole picture together with an audience, how terrifying and frightening the last part of the picture is, it's just too much for the audience. It's, so that uh, even those people who had my interest in, I felt that I'd gone too far, I don't believe I had. That was what I wanted to do. Was, it was a very tough picture. It's still in some ways. I can oh. think of it as, uh, as in many ways, what I like best than anything I've done, but it completely absent from it is the thing that would have been the, its whole point."
4: In the spring, RKO cut more than 40 minutes and changed the ending. It broke significantly with the film's serious tone, but also stayed true to the ending of the novel. Bernard Herrmann's score was heavily edited. When RKO cut more than half from the soundtrack, Herrmann severed ties with the film and promised legal action if his name wasn't removed from the credits.
2: I would have to say this: that I think, from a purely artistic point of view, purely that, it was probably a better film in its entirety, from a film standpoint. I don't think there's any question there. But we are faced with the realities of the other part of it. And I think the fact that the film has come down through the years, in its own right, is somewhat of a minor, if not more, than that classic, it means that we didn't really masterize it completely.
4: Ultimately. The Magnificent Ambersons lost RKO $620,000. in Brazil, Wells worked on It's All True. He'd conceived it as an omnibus film mixing documentary and fiction, comprising several stories about Pan-American culture from the Arctic to Tierra del Fuego. While in Rio de Janeiro, Wells planned to shoot Carnival and Jangadeiros or Four Men on a Raft. In return for all profits, RKO was to put up $1.2 million for the film. As co-producer of the project, the OCIAA guaranteed three hundred grand against any losses RKO might incur. There was no time to prepare a script. It wasn't possible until Wells arrived. All parties understood this and agreed. As an emissary of the U.S. government, Wells had to give up the Lady Esther Show, and he received no salary. But tensions were boiling with RKO because of Ambersons. Wells ignored their phone calls and shot what he wanted. He was bitter and felt the new board of directors was ignorant and going out of their way to make sure his projects failed. It's gone. The whole end of it. The whole uh, inactual plot was changed.
5: Do you ever get over something like that? Not really. You don't. You don't. But you see, I was in terrible trouble then because I was sent to South America by Nelson Rockefeller Jock Whitney. I was told that it was my patriotic duty to go and spend a million dollars shooting the carnival in Rio. I don't like things like carnivals in Mardi Gras and all that, but they put it to me that it would be a real contribution to inter-American affairs in the Latin American world and so on, so without a salary, but with a budget of a million dollars, I was sent to Rio to make up a movie about the carnival. But in the meantime, RKO is now a new government, and they asked to see the rushes of what I'm doing in South America. And they see a lot of people, black people. And the reaction is, he's just shooting a lot of jigaboos jumping up and down. They didn't even hear the samba music because it hadn't been synced up.
4: RKO was expecting stately and efficient vignettes. They instead received footage of wild interracial gatherings of common people. From the studio's point of view, releasing this to the U.S. public was dangerous and reckless. So I was fired from RKO. They
5: made a great publicity point of the fact that I had gone to South America without a script and thrown all this money away. I never recovered from that attack. So the fact that they had also, they had promised me when I went to South America that they would send a moviola and cutters to me and that I would finish the cutting of Ambersons there. They never did. They cut it themselves. So they destroyed Ambersons and The picture itself destroyed me. I didn't get a job as director for years afterwards.
4: Orson Welles returned to the United States on August 22, 1942, after more than six months in South America. He sought to continue the project elsewhere, managing to purchase some of the footage. But Welles eventually had to relinquish ownership back to RKO. He couldn't afford to pay the storage costs. It occurred to
9: me that the origins of Samba lay in voodoo ceremonies, particularly in Shangu, which are practiced up in uh, the favelas, those strange native settlements on the mountains which are right in the midst of the city of Rio. And so I arranged with a good deal of difficulty to film a voodoo ceremony. And uh, we had protracted conversations with the head of the group, this doctor. An advance payment was arranged for. He came to my office in Rio to discuss it And it was my unhappy lot to have to tell him that the filming was off because I had just received word from Hollywood that the president of the film studio had been rather abruptly removed. A new president was in his place, and the entire project was off. There was no more money to spend on voodoo ceremonies. And the witch doctor assured me that this was deeply offensive, that he and his group took it very badly, and I said I was most sorry about it myself did want to finish the film, and I did hope he understood. Ah, but he said, we have spent money. We have bought entirely new costumes. And I said, well, I'm awfully sorry, but there just isn't any money from Hollywood to pay you. And I, I don't know how I can explain to this new administration that the voodoo ceremony must continue. And I was called away to the telephone again, left the doctor in my office had a long conversation on the phone, begging and pleading to be allowed to finish this picture, which we rather liked. The material was very interesting, and I thought it would be a good thing to finish, since so much effort had gone into it, and I was pleading my cause for some time, praying that we would be able to, and I came back to the office and found that the doctor had gone, having been told that the deal was completely off, and that on my desk, in a script of the film, was a long steel needle. It had been driven entirely through the script, and to the needle was attached a length of red wool. This was the mark of the voodoo. The end of that story is that it was the end of the film, we were never allowed to finish it.
4: While some of the footage shot for It's All True was repurposed. Approximately 200,000 feet of Technicolor Nitrate Negative, most of it for the Carnival episode was later dumped into the Pacific Ocean.
5: Lord, have mercy on us all.
4: On the frigid blustery night of December 16th, 1835, the worst fire in New York City history sweeps through Manhattan everything south of Maiden Lane and east of Broad Street, at that time the city's chief merchant district and the one with the highest property value, turns to rubble. The fire causes the modern equivalent of a half billion dollars in damages, and the official investigation finds an exploded gas pipe near a lit coal stove in the offices of Comstock and Andrews to be the culprit. No public blame is ever assigned. But what if New York's greatest accidental fire was no accident. Coming to your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new audio drama about the fastest growing city in the world, and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed, or go to BurningGotham.com.